Welcome to another episode of This Engineering Life, the undergraduate series. I'm Rebecca Simmons, an associate professor of the practice of mechanical engineering and material science at Duke University. I'm joined with Sydney, Priya, Fran, Raina, and Grant, all undergraduate engineering students also at Duke University. In this episode, our last episode for fall 2021, we're talking with Bill Walker. Bill is an executive in residence in the Pratt School of Engineering. He talks about his career roller coaster and also the importance about asking difficult and critical questions and gives advice on team dynamics. It's a great interview. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to this Engineering Life podcast. We are a student-run podcast led by Dr. Simmons, and Raina and I are here today with Bill Walker. He's the Matson Family Director of Engineering Entrepreneurship at Duke, and we are here to talk about his experiences in the field of entrepreneurship, some successes and failures, and his perspective on how students can get involved and learn more about entrepreneurship. So, welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you. Good to be here with you chatting. Yeah, so just to start us off, I'd love for you to just give the audience a background on who you are and how you ended up at Duke. Sure. So I grew up mostly in a small town in western New York State near Rochester, a very rural town. I used to joke that there were more cows than people (laughs) when I left for college, and I think that's still true, actually. Knew from high school that I really liked physics and math and biology and didn't really know how to put all that together. Applied to a number of schools. Duke was one of them. And Duke required that you selected a major. and so. I thought I wanted to be an engineer, and they had this thing called biomedical engineering. I'd never heard of it before. I had no idea what it was, but I broke it down. Bio, obviously biology was involved. Medical, some kind of medicine, which I thought was interesting. I didn't really want to be a doctor, but I thought medicine was interesting. In engineering, which I knew had a lot of math and physics. And so I said, okay, that sounds like a good thing to major in. I was probably a junior before I figured out what the field really was, but it was a good choice. It's worked out well for me. It's had, I would say, unlimited opportunities to grow and challenge myself and learn new things. And at the end of the day, as a biomedical engineer, you can hope that your work will actually help real people. And that's really important to me. I find that that gives me a lot of energy and a lot of ability to weather storms when things get difficult or hard. If you know you're doing it for other people and it has a good reason, that really helps you get through it. So after you did your PhD here at Duke as well, and you went into entrepreneurship and your professional experience, can you tell us a little bit about that and how you got involved in that and how your career has evolved? Yeah. So when I was an undergraduate, one of my summers I spent in a hospital repairing medical equipment. So everybody that I worked with had an associate's degree, community college, and they spent all their time repairing all this medical equipment. And I started to look at it and think, well, first of all, the people who have designed a lot of this stuff have done a bad job. These things aren't put together very well. They are really hard to fix. They're hard to take apart. They're hard to put back together. It just felt like things weren't thought out a lot. And then I was really lucky. My junior year, a friend called me up one afternoon. I was taking like one nap of maybe the three I ever took as an undergrad. And she said, hey, they're doing a presentation about research over in the engineering school, looking for people who might want to do research in the summer. And I think you should come to it. And so I came over and there was this 
program that was very uncommon at the time where there was a nationally run program where they would pay undergraduates to do research. And I thought, well, I don't really have any plans for this summer, and that looks like it might be kind of fun. And so I worked in Dr. Howard Clark's lab for the summer with some other undergraduate students, and I just fell in love with doing research. I thought it was the coolest thing. It was like playing. I said to myself, if people are going to pay me to play, that's my career. I'll, I'll do that. And so I applied to grad schools. I applied to PhD programs, got into a number of places. But at the end of the day, I decided to stay at Duke. I decided to work with Dr. Greg Trahey here and really just had good chemistry with Greg. I felt like he understood me. And the projects in his lab were the hardest things I had come across. And so they were a really good chance to challenge myself. And over time, I started to gain some expertise and learn what I was doing and started to invent some things. And so I would invent them and I would report them to Duke. And then I would wait for my royalty checks to come in. And they never came in. <laughs> Nobody ever licensed a thing I invented. Nobody ever came forward. And so I had a little bit, I guess, where I sort of shook my fist and raged at the world and said, these idiots don't see my brilliance. I realized pretty quickly that Inventions are actually not very valuable. Products are valuable. Products that directly help people, that's valuable. But I'm never going to be of the caliber of work that's going to be a Nobel Prize. So for me, my ideas weren't that big. But if I can make a product, that started to become interesting. So as a grad student, I founded my first company with another friend who was a grad student here. We worked really closely with Dr. Cindy Toth in the Eye Center at Duke. And we had a really cool technology. We were going to repair retinal detachments using basically an ultrasound force field. So we could push the retina back in place and tack it down with a laser. That was the vision. We were a little slow in filing our patent. So somebody from NASA beat us to the punch. So that was heartbreaking. And we kept going back to Dr. Toth and other surgeons and saying, this is what we think we can do. This is why we think it's important. And the surgeons kept kind of pushing back. And what I finally realized was I was trying to sell a tool to surgeons that would eliminate surgery. So that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? You don't sell something that eliminates airplanes to airplane pilots. It just doesn't make any sense. And so we eventually realized that that company wasn't really going to go anywhere. So we folded it and shut it down. And that was right around the time that I left Duke and became a professor at the University of Virginia. I was a professor there for 12 years, but didn't really give up on the idea of creating products. So founded two other companies there. One was a company called Pocket Sonics. And this was way back in 2003, kind of time frame. And we were going to build a ultrasound scanner that was the size of a TV remote control. So it would have a sensor on the bottom and an LCD screen on the top. And you would place it on the skin and look right inside. And we called it the sonic window. It was like a window into the skin. And the idea would be that you would use this device to find and visualize peripheral veins. So some people, it's difficult to get an IV started. The idea would be with this device in the doctor's pocket, they could just pull it out, take a look and see. Now, handheld ultrasound is really common now, but almost 20 years ago, that was not true at all. In fact, we were, as a colleague at GE once said to one of my students, son, you're in a horse race. How fast does your horse run? Because ours runs pretty fast. And we ended up actually building a prototype we raised some money as a company, and ultimately we got the company in a partnership, and it was acquired. And the product actually went to the market, and then it flopped. And it flopped for a couple reasons. The first and most notable was as we were developing the product, we needed a subject to design around. And so I was always around the lab, so we said, well, we'll just pick 
me. I'll be the subject. We'll go for the vein at the crook of the arm, which is where everybody gets IVs inserted. And we'll just use that vein on me and we'll design to make sure we can visualize that clearly because if we can see that clearly, we'll probably be fine. Well, we did. And you guys are in the room and you can see this. Nobody mm -hmm. on the podcast can see it, but if you look at that vein, it's actually enormous. Yeah. Mine is actually about twice as big as normal people's. And we didn't know that at the time. We just thought, well, that's we'll use that one. Yeah. So what we did is we designed this system and it could do a really good job of visualizing a really big vein that anybody could find. It couldn't do a good job of visualizing really small veins that were the problem. Mm. So this is a case where the engineering team got so excited about the technology that we didn't really spend enough time talking to the customers and understanding what the real problem was. Now, the company that bought us actually realized pretty quickly that it wasn't going to work for what we said. And they pivoted and they were going to use it to monitor the shunts that are used in dialysis patients. So dialysis patients always have a large, either artificial or real vein inserted that they can plug the dialysis system into. And those are very large, but they fail. And if they fail, it's very costly to replace. You can intervene if they start to. So that was going to be the product space. But then the company changed leadership and decided to go in a different place. They took a significant amount of inventory, put it on a shelf, and that's where it sits today. But along the way, I founded another company with one of my grad students and another colleague. And this was a space where I had no real knowledge. We believed that we could use ultrasound to diagnose blood clotting. And we would do it in a blood sample outside the body. And we believed that we could push with ultrasound and sense as the blood went from a liquid to a soft clot, ultimately to a hard clot, and quantify just how hard that clot was. Now, at the beginning, our plan was that we were going to understand why people got blood clots, which if you think about the major cause of death in the United States, it's actually a blood clot. We use different terms. We talk about heart attack and we talk about stroke and we talk about pulmonary embolism. But all of those things are blood clots, blood clots in the heart, blood clots in the brain, blood clots in the lungs. And so that's what we were going to understand. And we went out as we were developing the technology and doctors said, well, that'll take 20 years to prove. So really exciting, but 20 years is gonna be a long time to prove that out. What if instead you tell us why our patients are bleeding in the operating room? And our initial thought was, well, they're bleeding because you haven't sewn them up. <laughs> and no, it turns out no. If a patient bleeds to death in the operating room, it's because their blood can't clot anymore. So what we ended up doing is we built our products so that we could diagnose the causes of bleeding in the operating room. People bleed in the operating room because the blood is damaged. They either don't have enough platelets or the platelets aren't working right. They lack the enzymes, the, the factors that cause clotting. They lack fibrinogen, which is the bricks that build up the clot, or they have residual heparin, which is an anticoagulant. And so before our product, the main mode of treatment was sort of a shotgun therapy approach. The team would guess, they'd put a blood product in the patient, wait 10 minutes, see if it helped. If it failed, they'd try another one. And so we built a device with a cartridge, and in 12 minutes we could test the blood and we could tell you why that patient was bleeding and what to do about it. So by 2010, I really was coming to believe that the technology could help a lot of people. And so I left the university, I gave up tenure, I ran the company as CEO for about three years, and then I hired a new CEO in who knew the space better than I did. I became the chief technical officer, ran the, that part of the company for a number of years, and then it was all going well. The product was getting near release, it was moving along well, and what I could do 
was getting less. My strengths weren't used as much. And so it was around that time that I decided to come back to Duke, and that was in 2016. And since then, the product has been completed, the company was acquired, and the product is for sale in the US and Europe. Also used in operating rooms. You asked a fairly simple question, <laughs> a very, very long answer. No, that's awesome. Was that kind of daunting for you, jumping into the space that you really didn't know much about and then going to eventually run this company? It was very daunting. And to be honest, I didn't realize how much I didn't know. I dove into it and we learned the basics of the biology pretty quickly. I am by no means an expert in, in clotting biology, but I do know the basics. But what we learned that was more important than all the science was we learned what clinicians were really troubled by. And when we would talk to doctors, they would tell us the operating room would go nuts when these patients were bleeding and they wanted to close their chest. And they couldn't because there's still blood. It keeps coming. It keeps coming. And until they can stop that bleeding, they can't close the patient. And until they can close the patient, that patient's getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And so we really viscerally came to understand how big a problem that was in the operating room. And once we understood that, we could start to build a product that solved that problem. At the end of the day, products don't have to have the best technology. They don't have to have a deep understanding of the science. They have to solve a problem that the customer finds really troublesome. And if they do that, they have a chance to succeed. And if they don't do that, all those other things probably won't matter very much. That's really good advice. One theme I found throughout the whole journey was there's a couple of pivots where you decide to pull the company or go to yeah. school or pass off CTO to someone else. What makes you decide that it's time to pivot? Yeah, so let me take that as a two-part question. You didn't ask the first question, which is what is a pivot? And in my career, Pivot is a term I often use in retrospect, but when it's happening, it never feels like a pivot. When it happens, it feels like the old Roadrunner cartoons where Wile E. Cody's run off the cliff and all of a sudden he realizes there's nothing holding him up. (laughs) That's what it feels like every time when I'm in one of those situations. And then sometimes I can scramble back onto the cliff face and sometimes I fall. So pivot is something that people in business love to say, and it makes it look like they did something really rational when a lot of times they overextended and they found out that they were in an untenable location. So for me, each of those situations has been different. Sometimes it was very rational. So with the first company where we were working in the eye, you know, I came to realize surgeons just weren't excited about what we were doing. And I realized there was nobody else that was going to buy the product. And so that was kind of the dead end for that part. Now, we did have collaborators who were really excited about using our technology as a diagnostic tool. And so we got a grant on that and we started to work on it. And it was only after a year of work that I sat down with a piece of paper and I said, well, there's about this many doctors that would buy this and about this many hospitals and it would last about this many years and it would be about this much revenue a year. And that number came out to be like $2 million. And so $2 million, any of us would take $2 million in our bank account. But in the United States today, one McDonald's franchise has $2.5 million of revenue a year. And I thought, okay, so even if I succeed at this, I'm not sure it's going to be enough money to build a company that can do anything beyond this, to do anything very big. Once I did that math, I was like, there's just nothing big enough here to be worth the risk and the effort. It was an easy choice to shut it down. Now, changing around at Hemasonic, some of the changes we made where I stepped out of the CEO role and brought in a CTO, those were personally a lot harder because, you know, I take a lot of pride in my work and the feeling that I couldn't do something, that it was beyond my knowledge or my experience, I take that really hard. It was personally very devastating. I mean, I'll be honest, the day that the board asked me to step down as CEO, I cried for about four hours. 
that's the longest I've cried as an adult ever. And I took it as a, it felt like a personal attack. Now, in fairness, looking back on it, the company wasn't moving the way it needed to move. And was that my fault? Was that the organization's fault? Or maybe it was no fault at all. Maybe it just had to be different. And it probably had to be different. I didn't like the way it happened. To this day, I think it could have happened in better ways. But the outcome was we got a stronger organization with a broader set of skills that was able to not only be true to our shareholders, but be true to the patients that we ultimately serve. So in that sense, it was all a good outcome. But yeah, pivot is a really convenient and comfortable word for something that's usually a lot more painful and harder than, than it sounds. Definitely. So I feel like it takes a lot of different skill sets. Like it's one thing to just be an engineer, to be passionate about creating, building, about problem solving. I feel like a lot of people are here at Duke because they want to be problem solvers. But to be an entrepreneur, to have a company, that's a whole additional set of skills. So can you tell us a little bit how you acquired these skills and if you have any advice for students who are like, this is what I want my career path to be and how they can achieve that? Yeah. So Raina, we've talked enough that, you know, I break out skills and knowledge as two sort of separate domains. Absolutely. And to be an entrepreneur, you need different skills and knowledge than you need as, a, as an engineer. But underneath both of those is a set of values. So I start with my values and, and my values are do things that matter in that they're gonna help a lot of people, treat people fairly and honestly, whether you like them or dislike them, treat everybody fairly and honestly, look for the truth, even if the truth doesn't make you look good or doesn't shine a light on you. So start with all those things, and I think whether you're an entrepreneur or a, an engineer or both, those things will serve you well. And so then you come to things like the knowledge and the skills. So if you wanna be an entrepreneur, you, you kinda of have to know a little bit about basic accounting because that's the lifeblood of your organization. And frankly, if you're an engineer who manages anybody other than yourself, you're also gonna to have to understand some basic accounting. So that's a basic knowledge base you have to have. Now, if you're building an organization and you have nobody else with you, you're also gonna to have to learn the skill of bookkeeping, right? So that's a skill that complements the knowledge of knowing how financial statements work. One of the things that as an engineer, I like to sort of encompass all the knowledge and skills that my team has. I'm not going to be the best in them, but I want to understand them and be able to execute on any of them. As an entrepreneur, you shouldn't take that attitude because it'll slow things down. So you have to be able to understand and ask critical questions, but you have to delegate in a way that you really can be largely hands-off. Ask hard questions like you would ask anybody you work with, but trust people to do their jobs well. If you don't trust them to do their jobs well, replace them, change it around. There's no shame in that. It's not always bad for someone to leave a team. We think about getting fired as a great failure in life. Sometimes getting fired is a really great outcome. Sometimes that tells you, I was in the wrong place. I think one of the things I've sometimes had a mistake is I don't wanna let people go, even when it's not really working very well. And sometimes I have to say, it's better for everybody if they go do a different thing where they're better suited. So different skill sets. As an entrepreneur, you have to think about really understanding people well. And that goes to knowing when you ask somebody a question, are they telling you what you want to hear? Because one of the things that ironically I find an entrepreneur who's pleasant can actually have a harder time than one who's difficult in terms of interacting with customers. Because if you're pleasant, people don't say like, wow, that's a terrible idea because they don't want to hurt your feelings, but they might think it's a terrible idea. If you're awful, people will tell you your face, you're, that's terrible, go away, don't bother me. I don't wanna be an awful person, I wanna be a pleasant person. So I have to watch you. You know, if, if I ask you about my product or I show it to you and your words are, that's really cool, but I look in your eyes and they're like dead and you're not interested, I have to watch that cue. 
when I work with somebody on my team, I have to learn about what they care about. I am not a subscriber to the view that, oh, well, you work for me, therefore you're gonna do what I tell you. I mean, this is not running a team of sled dogs. These are human beings. They have to care and love what they do. So you have to give them the freedom to do it well, and you have to understand what matters to them. So they have the chance to enjoy it and to really love it. That's how the team wins. And that's how you enjoy coming into work every day. And I think those are the things that as engineers, we don't really spend enough time learning about and appreciating. There's all kinds of other stuff about raising money and building contracts and all those other things. But those to me are, those are details in some sense. Mm-hmm. Duke is a very collaborative space, especially in engineering. I can't even imagine how many different teams I've been on in the four years I've been here. And same with building a company, that saying of hire slow, fire fast. I'm curious, from a Duke perspective, how do you build a solid team? what key players need to be there and how you should structure something. And I'm imagining like anything from project teams to lab teams, what are the key components that make a team? Yeah, so the first one and the most fundamental one is successes are shared and failures are people hold themselves responsible. So the worst thing is a team where people keep score and they say, yeah, well, we fixed that circuit. I mean, I fixed it because I had the insight. That is destructive, that is corrosive. Everybody on the team will hear that and they'll resent that. Now, if instead you say, this was a great job as a team, we worked together, we fixed that circuit. I realized that I had hooked up the power wrong originally and thank you for pointing that out to me so that I could fix it. See how that's a team you wanna be with, that's a team you wanna work with, you wanna support one another. The first team, you're like, oh my gosh, that's just resentful. Like, are we keeping score really? To me, that's the first thing. Does the team support each other? It doesn't take very much to corrode the culture of a group. Really, one person can ruin it for everybody. And so I've been unfortunate. I've had people that have those kind of corrosive attitudes, and I just won't again. If you're ready to work really hard and share credit for all successes and take responsibility for things that don't go well, we're going to solve all the problems a whole lot faster, and we're going to enjoy every minute of doing it. Without those characteristics, even if we get to the win, people are gonna dislike each other, they're not gonna enjoy working, they're not gonna have fun. Life's too short. So at Duke now, you're involved in a whole slew of amazing (laughs) programs. I met you through the Clark Scholars Program, so we kind of focus on the intersection of engineering and entrepreneurship, and that's been an amazing experience, and I've really mostly enjoyed talking about how values impact both of that and how there's the intersection between the three of them. Is there anything that you can recommend, any final words you're giving to students who are maybe struggling now academically or struggling to get into their field? Just any final words of advice? Yeah, so I think, you know, for me, the first rule is work hard. And that sounds really trite, right? It it sounds like, okay, that doesn't mean anything, but it actually means a lot. I know students who tell me they really don't like school, but they don't actually go to class or they don't actually do their problem sets. They don't do the labs with real curiosity. Well, you can't tell me you don't like school if you don't do school. You don't know, actually. You've made up your mind before you have the data. A lot of people I know, especially young people, they've been fed a myth. And the myth is that they will have a passion that will fall from the sky on them. And then that passion will carry them up the mountain to glory. In my experience, it doesn't work that way. What works is you get up in the morning, and you work hard at what's before you, and you ask hard questions. 
You ask hard questions of yourself. You ask hard questions of the people around you. You ask hard questions of the technology and the science. You look for your own limitations and your own strengths and what the technology can and can't do. And then tomorrow, you get up and do it again. And at some point, having done that for a while, you will either say, holy cow, there's a bunch of really interesting stuff here. Or maybe there's a bunch of really stuff that's interesting to somebody, but I hate this. Either way, you have an answer that you can take forward with your life. The only way to fail, in my mind, is to fail to engage. If you engage deeply, there is no failure. You know, I thought it was interesting you guys sort of set up the podcast as let's talk about failure. I have plenty of things that have not turned out the way I planned that they would or I thought that they would. And it was painful when it happened. But when I look back on it, I learned something really valuable. And that was a choice. I chose to use it as a lesson as opposed to hang on to it as a point of failure. That's my overriding, be curious, work hard. If you love it, do more of it. If you hate it, set it aside and work hard and be curious about a new thing. If you do that, I don't, I don't know how you can not have fun and do really good stuff. That's incredible advice. I feel like a lot of us are at that point in the semester right now where we can view a lot of our shortcomings as maybe failure, but I think hearing about your experiences and hearing about how failure can be a positive thing can be a lesson in the long run. Yeah. And so I don't call it a, a failure. There are lessons that are smooth and lessons that are bumpy. There's still all lessons. Yeah. Rainy, you've heard me say this to students before, but you are in a very fortunate place. First of all, if you're at Duke, you have great ability. That's how you got here. You're surrounded by others who also have great ability, and you have phenomenal resources. We have great physical space, we have great intellectual colleagues, and we have a network of alumni that are global that will bend over backwards to try to help you realize that. And by the way, when I was a student, classes were really hard. They were really hard for me. And if I went back and took some of them now, if I had to take organic chemistry again, it would be really hard this time too. Yeah. So you're not alone in finding the work hard. But the opportunities are great. So power through, try to remember to be proud of yourselves and keep challenging yourselves to grow. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. Appreciate your time, Bill, and hope to catch you again in a future season of this Engineering Life podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you. So, Reyna, what did you think about our chat with Bill? I thought it was actually an incredible interview. I love talking to Bill. I can talk to him like every day for the rest of my life and I feel like I'll always learn something new. Batman has had an incredible path. I really liked when he talked to us about his experience when he was the CEO of his company and how when he was asked to step down, he was just so vulnerable with us. He told us that he cried about it and that makes sense. I mean, that company was like his child. He raised that from the ground up and that's a really hard thing. And that's one thing I love about Bill and why I think he's such an amazing mentor because that's not always something that you see engineers talk about like in the classroom or just in our experiences here at Duke. But he's always so honest and will really just give you the best advice because he's been through it and he's always so open about his experiences. Yeah, I also really appreciated his, his vulnerability and I really liked his perspective on pivoting. He mm -hmm. said pivoting is a retrospective term that people like to use and look back. But in reality, when you're in the moment, it's not a pivot. Either the floor dropped beneath you or something unexpected happened. And then looking back, you can call it a pivot. And I just thought that was a really good way of looking at kind of changing your career path. And he's obviously had quite a few changes. Yeah. When I went into this interview, I wanted to hear about his experience with failure. And he kind of redefined that for me. 
when we were talking about pivoting because while it may have seemed like a failure to him then, retrospectively he can look at it and be like, okay, well this is the lesson I learned from it. And every time he had a pivot like that in his career, looking back, he just, he bounced right back and he did something even better. And I think that's a great lesson that we can learn from him. Yep, it was full of good lessons, and I love the final words of parting advice, which were to work hard and to ask difficult questions. And I think we can all hold that as we approach final season now. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's great advice. I think a great takeaway from this interview. Perfect. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. This is the end of season four of this Engineering Life podcast. We want to thank our wonderful editors, Raina and Priya, and Dr. Simmons and all the listeners and Grant and Sydney for being amazing. And we can't wait to catch you guys in the next season. This Engineering Life is brought to you and supported by the Pratt School of Engineering at Duke University. A special thanks to all of our interviewees for sharing their experiences. As this is our last episode of the season, be sure to check back next spring when we'll be coming back with season five of This Engineering Life. We're super excited for these new episodes. Can't wait to see you there. You can find this episode and more resources online at thisengineeringlife.com. I'm Fran. I'm Priya. I'm Raina. And I'm Grant. And thanks for tuning in to today's episode of This Engineering Life. We'll see you again next week.